Hi, this is Matthew Brown, and you need more front wing. Welcome to another More Front Wing podcast. I'm Steph Walcraft, and uh, Paul is away this week. He's uh, he's off doing some real work for his real job. So uh, I've asked John Lingle, one of our contributors at, uh, at More Front Wing, to sit in. Uh, and the main reason for that, not well, I mean, the main reason for that is because we like John and we enjoy having him on the show. Um, but the other reason for that is that uh, John has spent a lot of time looking at the Junior Series this year, and uh, we are going to be talking about the Junior Series a fair bit, uh, taking some time in between the Baltimore and Houston events to um, to give some exposure to the young guns, the future stars of the Eyes on IndyCar series. So, John, great to have you back. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Looking forward to it. Great. So before we get into the Junior Series stuff, and um, we do definitely want to give a lot of time to that because uh, we we um, don't often do it enough, and we should do it more, and we're going to try to start doing it more. Um, but before we do get into that, we've got a, a couple of stories that have developed over the last um, few days that we'd like to touch on. Of course, the biggest one being the loss of the event in Baltimore. Um Seems or uh, the the releases all say that uh, it just wasn't possible to to get a date figured out. We all knew that there was a scheduling conflict with a big college football game happening in the Inner Harbor area next year on Labor Day, and uh, it seems that we couldn't get another date settled. Uh, what are your feelings on that one, John? Well, I just hate to see it. I mean, you feel like we've spent the last three years there, kind of working the bugs out, uh, getting the track layout problems fixed, and. Uh, for better or for worse, it's it's been an event that's generated a lot of interest. Uh, you know, say what you will about the racing there, uh, pe- people got different opinions on it, obviously. But uh, that that event has has attracted a lot of fans. Uh, I know the gate was supposed to be over 150,000 fans this weekend. Yeah, apparently a record crowd this weekend, which is amazing to think of because the first year crowd was incredible. Yeah, I mean, so it seemed to be well received uh, and, and generated a lot of interest. So you hate if it is just purely a scheduling conflict. You hate to see it drop off just because we couldn't find another date that could be agreed on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, although part of me, my putting my, my tinfoil conspiracy theorist uh, hat on, can't help but wonder if there's more to it than just a scheduling conflict, you know? Um, we all know that the uh, this one has been, since its inception, a doubleheader with the ALMS, and ALMS is uh, no longer going to be... Um, in, in existence in its current form next year. It's uh, morphing into uh, the merger with uh, Grand Am and becoming the U- United Sports Car Racing Series. And um, when it does that, I think they're taking about, what, 20 races or something like that and um, trying to pare them down into a schedule of 12. So there are going to be a lot of events that don't make the cut. And I wouldn't be surprised to learn that Baltimore was one of them and that um, – with the uh, the SRT backing the uh, presenting sponsor having come from the LMS relationship, whether maybe there um, there wasn't actually enough money in the in the pot to to allow this weekend to continue. Well, I know if if it was coming down to that, there you know there's going to be a lot of good venues that get the axe on the new uh, U.S. sports car schedule, and uh, if they were on the fence at all. Uh, I know the ALMS race this past weekend left a bad taste yeah. in uh, some of the teams, especially the Falcon Porsche and some other teams that had to buy new tubs. Uh, so, you know, I would imagine that decision had already been made, but if, if they were on the fence, that, that 
could have played a part in it. Yeah, absolutely. So definitely not ever good to see uh, an event drop off the schedule, but um, some people, uh, I think there will be a lot of mixed feelings. It seems that anybody who actually attended this race is very sad to see it go, um, and that's understandable. There are a lot of events like that where, you know, it's easy to sit on the couch at home and say, oh, well, it was awful racing on TV, but to, to go there is um, is just a great, fantastic event, and a lot of people seem to feel that way about Baltimore. Um I think a lot of people that I know are going to be sad that they won't have an excuse to eat crab cakes again for a little <laughs> while. <laughs> but, uh, um, yeah, I mean, possible that um, – I don't, I don't know if we're actually going to find a way to make that up. In, in the 2014 schedule being so late in the game. Uh, we know that the the IMS road course race opening the month of May is uh, getting to the point of being a foregone conclusion. Um, and I believe that there's going to be a quote-unquote race added to the schedule in that um, St. Pete is evidently being um, awarded a doubleheader um, as well. So uh, it will be interesting to see where this all shakes out. And um, I wonder if this will be the last one that we hear about. In, in terms of uh, these double headers with the sports cars, uh, maybe starting to, to wane a little bit as the as their schedule starts to get fleshed out. Yeah, yeah. I just I hate I hate to see us lose it just from the standpoint of uh, geographically. You know, if if we're adding an, another like as you said, quote unquote race at a venue we're already at, that's not truly an ad. It is for the folks there that already get those tickets. But then, you know, if we're taking away something from the Northeast, and if if our answer to that IndyCar was is to is to add another race in Indianapolis, regardless of your feelings on 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 that race, the venue, and everything else, I just hate to see it from the from the geographic standpoint. I mean, we need to have a broader reach as a sport, not be narrowing down and and, and becoming more Midwest centric. You know, I know we talked about earlier that. Uh, uh, offline about you know we've got a got a going to have a bunch of races in Texas got a bunch of races in California a bunch of races up in the Midwest but there's there's these large pockets of of the map that could be served with an IndyCar race that they're not getting right now yeah I, it baffles me that there's no race at Portland I don't I I really don't understand that I don't there must be some relationship issue there or maybe they're not interested because the sanctioning fee is too high but that to me is a market that. IndyCar needs to be in, and it makes no sense to me. And then you look on the Eastern Seaboard, and there's a there's some viable venues there. Although some of the ones that come up in conversation are are not as viable as people might think. Apparently, VIR is too small. Um, I think Lime Rock is too small. Um, yeah. And uh, Richmond. I mean, that race is is. A possibility, but we hear through the grapevine that the only reason that one ever existed in the first place was the relationship with Philip Morris, and now that Marlboro is not uh, investing in IndyCar anymore, that um, that there's not the the motivation to do that event that there was, and the fact that the last event there was not exactly a barn burner might have something to do with that. Um, and so we're down to talking about street venues, like uh, this rumored event that that Providence, Rhode Island is interested in, um, but I don't see anything like that coming off for 2014, 2015 at the earliest, and then we all know that there are a lot of um, balls that need to drop in the right places for that to even happen at all, so definitely well, a lot of questions. Yeah, and it's just proven so hard to keep a, so few street races succeed over long periods of time, and you just, yeah, just know from my standpoint, I wish they would look more at uh, 
natural terrain road courses or ovals that they're not already at, you know, Phoenix, which has some tradition, uh, Richmond, like we talked about, which of course, obviously there's a, there's, there's some other issues there. There's so many good road courses out there where they could run an event. You could find a date on the schedule and, and if it was promoted correctly, it, it could become something that, that is a, a yearly thing that people look forward to, you know, Watkins Glen or some, uh, someplace like that. Um, you know, so the, the Providence one, I, you know, I haven't heard much more on that, but, uh, you know, it'd be interesting, but those things seem to, to come and go so quickly, you know, a la Baltimore, where you get three years and it seems to be doing good and then it's just gone. You know? Yeah, that's an interesting thought process because the problem, the reason why you don't see IndyCar at places like Watkins Glen and Road America and, and um, more established venues like that that we've heard over and over again is that they, they charge too high of a sanctioning fee for what the tracks feel they're getting in return. Um, and... The, the reason why these street events come off so easily from what I'm, what I'm given to understand is because when you get a street event, you've got different levels of government that are all pitching in to make the investment in the tourism return that they're going to get. And so that's why the money there flows a little bit more easily to, to pay the sanctioning fee. Um, but it's that, that old, um, problem that comes around time again where do you get a lot of money in the short term as you said because a lot of these street races don't last all that long or do you take a little bit of a hit to make a long-term investment in, a, in an event that you can establish and keep on your schedule for a long time and and um, get some some date equity in and and get people you know wanting to come back and uh, that's that's a very good question that I think not a lot of people are asking right now so let's move on to um, the uh, one of the other big stories. And uh, we're recording just in the middle of the weekend here at kind of a strange time. So um, the news is just freshly coming out as we record this that Juan Pablo Montoya has said, uh, sorry, Michael Andretti, I'm not interested in coming back to IndyCar because I've had this deal come up in NASCAR. And uh, it seems as though he's headed to Furniture Row Racing um, to replace Kurt Busch as he moves on. So, um, yeah, we're not going to spend a lot of time complaining about that aspect because this is an IndyCar show um, but certainly sort of I don't know if you can even call it surprising but uh, maybe disappointing that to, to see him follow the money although my opinion tends to be that if anybody really ever thought this was going to come off in the first place that they might be kidding themselves a little bit yeah I think there was some wishful thinking uh, involved there but uh, that said I mean this this is obviously a, a money deal there, you know, if you're turning down, he, he comes out and says after he loses the ride with Ganassi and says, you know, I want to win. doesn't matter what series I go to. I, I want to be in a winning car. I'm not going to go drive anything if I'm not in a winning car. He, he says all the right things and then signs with Furniture Row Racing, which has exactly one win in about 10 years in the sport. Uh, a tire strategy gamble at Darlington with Regan Smith a few years ago. And... I'm sorry, guys, but we've we've seen Juan Pablo in seven years in NASCAR. If Kurt Busch couldn't get that car in victory lane yet, Juan Pablo is not going to get it done. Well, so there's he's, he's cashing a check. There's no guarantee he was going to get it done in IndyCar either, and there might be a. I mean, this is pure speculation, but there might be a bit of a saving face situation playing out there too, in terms of does he? I mean, he's he's wants to be in a winning car, sure, but what if he comes back to IndyCar after the spectacular record that he has in open wheel and then completely tanks it? I, I think that's a very valid deal, and uh, as an Almondinger fan, I say I think that plays a little, <laughs> little bit of a part there too. I mean, I, I think you're, 
I hadn't thought about it till you just mentioned it now, but I think that definitely could could play a factor. It's that fear of, you know, what if I come back and and I'm this Formula One guy and you know I dominated the one Indy 500 I ran and what if I come back and I can't win? Yeah, exactly. So uh, maybe better to to go out of a of a long and storied career with a fizzle in NASCAR than a fizzle in the the major series where he started. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so so sayonara, Juan Pablo Montoya looks like we won't be talking about you for a while. That's about all we have to say about that. Uh, let's go over the third story, and this one's not... It, it's a story in that it's a non-story in a way, um, but we're, we're looking at uh, Tony Kanaan and um, his inab- inability to find a ride for next year. And, um, John, you, you started going on a little bit of a rant about this before we started recording, and I had to tell you to stop because I wanted you to save it <laughs> for the show. So uh, why don't you, you go ahead and uh, get us started in this one? Well, I just look at it from the standpoint of, of you know, everybody knows Tony Kanaan is a fantastic talent. He's a... He, past champion, Indy 500 winner. It just, uh, I guess, irks me a little bit that he continues. I know he talked about the same thing last year before he got the KV racing deal done. When you read his quotes, it's almost like he seems incredulous as, as if he's the only person that, that has to find some money to be able to run. And I know me and you talked offline about the fact that, you know, if any of these teams – had the sponsorship money in place, and that wasn't a problem, they'd have no problem. He'd be at one of the top guys on the list as far as, yeah, well, you know, hey, what do you need What do you need to run? Here you go. Here's a check. But that being said, with the purses that are being paid in IndyCar and the TV money returns and stuff that's there, you've got to have sponsorship in place or you're just throwing money down a hole. And, and to just expect that everybody's just going to be willing to throw money down a hole for you – is kind of short-sighted. I mean, everybody would, they'd love to have you, but you know, these guys are all businessmen too. Yeah. They're racers and they want to run and they want to win, but they're not doing this all just out of the goodness of their heart to, to chase trophies. There is a business aspect to it too. And you've got to have the funding in place. Um, you know, there's only two or three guys that don't have, don't have that, uh, deal where they have to bring something with them or have a sponsor that's willing to, to run them to be able to get a paycheck. And those guys, if they lost those present rides that they were in, would find themselves in the exact same situation. Well, They'd talk to, to Ryan have... Briscoe about that. Exactly. I mean, you know, he's a great racer. You don't have the sponsorship. A.J. Allmendinger, you know, Penske wanted to run him in more races this year. He had sponsorship for... Well, we don't know that they still wanted to after Detroit, but <laughs> well, yeah, they they say they do, so you know, it depends. You know, we'd heard that they they might try to run him in California or this or that or the other, you know. But without sponsorship money, there there's no return for the for the team owners there. So, well, and let's do some quick math here because if you have an Indy one Indy 500 winner plus one season budget for an average team of six million dollars. Plus one rating at Mid Ohio of point zero two. <laughs> that that formula doesn't add up, unfortunately. So that I mean that points to a bigger problem in IndyCar that unfortunately um, Tony Kanon is is becoming a victim of right now. In that it's difficult to convince sponsors that there's that there's a lot of return for for the money that needs to be spent. And uh, you know it's a challenge that IndyCar's had for years, but it's getting it's getting bigger. And so. Um, if you don't have a sponsor that's already got a history in the sport, 
and, and likes what they're getting out of it or has a uh, CEO or someone that's making the decisions that, that wants to be, you know, that, that has that want to see their name on the side of a race car. Good luck pitching, uh, asking for $6 million for that type of return. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, you're not, it's not, that's why you're not seeing new sponsors come in. No. You know, you're not going to go to a company and say, hey, you give me $6 million and I'll guarantee you that, you know, 18 weeks of the year, we'll get 300,000 people to watch TV <laughs> and we might see your car on TV if you run good yeah. for, you know, two, three minutes total of the broadcast. And once you splice it all in, uh, good. Hey, if you, if you find the people that'll do that, let me know because I, I need to sell them some stuff too. Yeah, exactly. So uh, just sort of points to the bigger challenges that IndyCar has in front of it right now. We know it's something that they're working on, so um just needs to be monitored, I guess, at this stage. There's not a whole lot that any of us armchair quarterbacks can do about it. So we'll Yeah, until, until some changes happen, it's just it's unfortunate. You know, we, none of us want to see it that way, but... It's just it's just the reality of the situation. Exactly, right now. and it's it's such a shame that when the the DW12 was developed, that they weren't able to make the to bring the budgets down enough to to sort of stabilize everything. So that is no doubt a conversation that's being had behind closed doors right now. All right, I think we've spent enough time on uh, depressing IndyCar news, so <laughs> let's um, let's look at the Young Guns, the uh, the development series that are both going into their final weekends um, in the, the uh, Shell and Pennzoil Grand Prix of Houston, and that is the Pro Mazda Championship and the USF 2000 Championship. Let's start with Pro Mazda, um, because the truth is that we've already done quite a bit of coverage on that, because it already has a champion in Matthew Brabham for this year. So um, we have spoken to Matthew Brabham. Actually, John, you spoke to Matthew at the beginning of the year and then I spoke to him after he clinched his championship and so those discussions are both up on morefrontwing.com and um, going back and reading them actually can be kind of interesting to sort of get his perspective on things at the beginning of the season and then coming out of a season that uh, he's already acknowledged is probably going to be the best of his career. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, whenever I spoke to him at uh, Circuit of the Americas, spoke to him right after the first round of the championship, which Diego Ferreira won uh, for Juncos Racing. And, uh, you know, he had no idea how the season was going to take off for him. They were still trying to get on top of the Cooper tires. I remember he made some comments. And, you know, they were still working on some setup issues. They had thought at that point they'd lost some of the speed they'd had in, in preseason testing. You know, looked look that he was going to be extremely competitive, but we had no idea that he would go and uh, win the next seven races, uh, miss out at uh, both rounds at Canadian Tire Motorsport Park, and then he's won the next four races after that. So, I mean, the, the, the story of the 2013 Pro Mazda Championship is Matthew Brabham came, he saw, he conquered. I mean, he's he has just dominated this series this year. He's won all but three races. Absolutely. And uh, no question whatsoever where he's going to be next year, moving up to Indy Lights, taking his Mazda sponsorship with him. Um, will it be with Andretti Autosport? Most likely, you tend to think that uh, Michael seems to be an interested in uh, in keeping his drivers in the ladder if they're performing for him. Although um, I think is it Sage Karam that might have some some things to say <laughs> about that. Yeah. Um, but anyhow, <laughs> um, yeah, just Matthew is is absolutely blowing everybody's socks off with his performance this year. He's setting records left and right, and um, he, we 
can't help but uh, feel that that his um, assistance from being with a team like Andretti Autosport probably would have uh, had a great deal to do with that, being the only team that operates at all four levels of the road to Indy. And um, he's he's talked to us about the fact that that uh, creates a big advantage because he gets to um, look at data from from different series to see what the cars are doing. He gets to bounce ideas off um, even the the top level drivers uh, at times. So um, no doubt all came together for him and he benefited in spades in terms of the way that the season came out uh, having already locked up the championship coming out of the uh, Grand Prix of Trois-Rivières. Yeah, absolutely and you know Andretti is 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 the gold standard as far as ladder series teams go and I know Jeremy Shaw when I spoke to him uh, you'll be able to see some of these quotes in an upcoming article that we've got coming up had a real good conversation with Jeremy uh, talking about the maturation process that Matthew went through uh, this past summer going over to England as, as the Team USA scholarship winner, or one of the Team USA scholarship winners. And uh, Jeremy um, pointed out that he thinks one of the biggest things that, that Matthew learned while over there was uh, the importance of his feedback and the confidence in his own feedback. And that once he brought that back with Andretti, with the team that they have behind him, it just, it just turned, became such a potent combination that led to just a, a dominating season. I mean, the, we were talking offline about this. You know, Matthew barely won the USF 2000 championship last year, had a tooth and nail battle with Spencer Piggott. Uh, Spencer actually won more races than Matthew did. Everybody had every inclination that that would be the exact same thing that would play out this year. Mm-hmm. And uh, Spencer, uh, he did win round nine uh, at Canadian Tire Motorsports Park. But, uh, you know, n- nobody saw... Dan Anderson was speaking with him. Jeremy was speaking with him. I know uh, Matthew mentioned to you that he definitely didn't foresee this uh, in, the, in the interview that's up on More Front Wing. No, no one saw this coming, but it's just been a, been a perfect match this year. And uh, it'll be really interesting to see if he can carry that over into Indy Lights next year. Absolutely. So um, just in terms of some, some season review coverage, you've got an article coming up uh, for More Front Wing, as you mentioned, that will sort of be a season review coming into their last weekend at Houston. And uh, you're going to the banquet as well, are you not? Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, Dan and, uh, and Tammy with Pro. Pro Mazda have uh, got me RSVP there, so we'll be at the banquet. We'll get some quotes from folks there. Uh, the article coming up, we're going to have some really good information. Had a time to uh, sit down on the phone with Dan and, and Jeremy Shaw from Team USA Scholarship and uh, got their thoughts uh, not just on Matthew, but uh, we also delved a little deeper into it uh, as far as uh, contenders like Diego Ferreira, uh, Shelby Blackstock, and uh, Spencer Piggott, and uh, got some really interesting quotes from those guys as far as what they saw out of those guys what they think they should do going forward, and uh, and how their success will, will translate as well. So we've got some really interesting stuff coming up. Fantastic. So let's also look then at the uh, USF 2000 series. A little bit more um, question there, although maybe still not a whole lot. We've got um, Scott Hargrove, who's leading the championship, going into their final weekend at the, the Grand Prix of Houston, and that's a, a doubleheader weekend for them. So there are two races coming up, and he's got a 44-point lead over his teammate, Neil Alberico, and um, a win in USF 2000 is 30 points. So he's got a full race, but there are two to go, and um, certainly it's not a completely done deal, but as long as Scott can have a sort of conservative and... Um, 
and uh, staying out of trouble sort of weekend, he shouldn't have too much trouble getting the job done. So I had a, a chance to sit down with Scott Hargrove recently uh, to get his his thought process going into what he hopes will be his championship winning weekend and uh, and uh, chat with him about a few other things about his career up to this point and uh, where he hopes to go from here. So let's give that a listen right now. Steph Walcraft and WarfrontWing.com here with Scott Hargrove, who is uh, heading to Houston looking to win his first USF 2000 championship. Scott tails from Surrey, BC, and he's 18 years old. He races with Cape Motorsports with Wayne Taylor Racing in the USF 2000 series. And with the final two races left in Houston, he has a 44-point lead over his teammate Neil Alberico and is hoping to, as I said, clinch the title going into Houston. So uh, thank you very much for joining us, Scott. Really appreciate it. Thank you, and thanks for having me. So uh, maybe you could uh, start by just telling us a little bit about, in your words, from maybe some of the people who are listening who haven't followed uh, the USF 2000 series all that closely this year, how your season has gone and what your high points and low points have been up to this point. Yeah, absolutely. So this is my second year racing in the USF 2000 series, part of the Mazda Road to Indy. And um, last year I raced uh, with JDC Motorsports and uh, – we had a good year, just uh, some luck didn't go our way, and and then uh, I knew at that point that um, I needed uh, I needed a second year in the championship. So that's when uh, I phoned up uh, Kate Motorsports with Wayne Taylor Racing and told them, uh, you know, I'm I'm looking to win this championship, and uh, are you guys going to be able to help me do that? And and uh, so we organized a test, and and things went well, and I signed with them. So coming into this year, I didn't. Uh, I didn't really have any expectations of how things were going to go. Um, I just knew that uh, we had the speed from testing uh, to be competitive up front, and I uh, just went into the year. And uh, things just really started going our way uh, right off the bat. And then um, uh, Neil Alberico, my teammate, was uh, was pretty quick uh, in the Winterfest, and, and I knew it, it was going to be a, a difficult to beat him, but as soon as the regular year started, uh, things started to go my way a little bit and uh the year's just kind of gone that way ever since it's just everything seems to fall into place great um at times this year the usf 2000 field has been as high as 30 cars and yet it seems as though you and neil have pretty much owned the season i think you've got what nine wins between you something like that yeah Yeah. so so what do you attribute uh, that success to that the team has had uh, over the course of this season well, the team for sure uh, knows their their stuff, and and it shows when they've won the team championship now two years in a row. And we d- we just clinched that uh, last weekend in uh, Laguna area in Mazda Raceway. So that was uh, that's quite special for the team. But me and Neil worked really well together last year because we were teammates on JDC again, and uh, I knew he was quick. And um, I think you know you put a driver like me and him uh, with a team as capable of Cape and. Uh, I you know I don't want to toot my own horn, but I think I think uh, it was uh, meant to be right right off the bat. You know I think based off his speed and my speed, uh, we were going to be hard to beat no matter what. Right. Um, so now you, as we said at the beginning, are 44 points ahead of Neil heading into the last two races at Houston. And uh, under the USF 2000 point system, you get 30 points for a win. So you're more than a full race ahead of him at this stage. So um, Where's your head at going into the final weekend uh, with with a mind to knowing that you haven't quite clinched this thing yet, but it, it's not going to take too great of a weekend to do so, you hope? 
Yeah, exactly. It's uh, it's a good feeling, but like like you said, it's not done yet. So I just have to go into that first race and make sure I um, I finish high enough to to clinch in the first race. That's my goal. Uh, but I'm not gonna worry about it too much. I don't even know where I need to finish just because I don't like to worry about that sort of thing and just do my best and uh, make sure I have a clean race and hope that it all works out. So that's that's my goal for the weekend. But for sure. Um, you know, still got one more win, win, win than me this year so far. So uh, I hope to be able to tie him or even better that later on uh, in Houston. So I'm going to go for, uh, especially if I clinch in the first race, I'll be going for the win no matter what in the second and just uh, really enjoy enjoy the weekend. Great. Um, in a season that's been generally quite positive for you, what would you say that your biggest challenge has been throughout the year? Biggest challenge would be to... Uh, get over the things that haven't been in my control. I've had uh, two races now where I feel like I didn't necessarily uh, do anything wrong. And yet I didn't, I got uh, a win taken away from me at mid Ohio. And then again, last weekend at Laguna, I, I got an 11th place, place finish because I lost my front wing. And so just getting over that and, and knowing that you, like bad luck happens to other people as well and just move on from it and forget and like like what happened last weekend I was able to move past it and get a win the next day so that that's definitely um that's really been the I think the story of the year is that both me and Neil have have had our bad luck uh this year and if you look at the points uh totals compared to last year they're they're quite a bit lower um as, even though we're still leading the championship right um looking ahead now as you must be starting to do to next year um either way whether you clinch the title or not although at this point we certainly hope that the luck does go your way but uh either way you must be feeling right now as though you're ready to move up have you started looking into those plans um kate motorsports doesn't race in pro mazda so are you starting to consider your options there what where are you at at this stage well, absolutely. I, I think next year uh, we'll be moving up for sure. Just um, with who yet you don't know. Uh, obviously, throughout the year I've been paying attention to what's going on uh, in Pro Mazda, and and it's uh, it's definitely on my mind. But right now, the the goal is to to clinch this championship, and uh, and then we'll be focusing on on next year. So uh, I haven't really talked to many people yet. That um, you know, it's just. I really want to finish off this year strong, and then and then show show uh, then go into talks uh, with the with the results behind behind me. So that's that's the goal, or that's the plan for right now. That makes a lot of sense. It looks a lot better on the resume when you can say that you're a champion when you when you go into the negotiations <laughs> for sure. If exactly. when we, I don't want to jinx you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> um, so now you are Canadian and so am I. And so we're going to finish off this interview with a few self-indulgent questions. I hope that our listeners don't mind. Um, I know that one thing that has been um, talked about a lot up in the Great White North these days is uh, how young Canadian drivers are moving up. Because back in the day, I'm sure that you're familiar, there, there used to be a pretty structured system for how people would sort of move up through. And it was all supported by players and there was lots of money flying around. and It used to be quite easy. And that's how we got guys like, Greg Moore, Jacques Villeneuve, um, Patrick Carpentier, Alex Tagliani, they all came up through that system. But once the tobacco money went away, it no longer existed. And so, so there, there's this sense um, that, that young guys like you are just sort of 
flailing their way through to figure out how to work their way up. So maybe you could talk a little bit about exactly what your path was um, that got you to this level and, and um, give us some insight into what the young Canadian drivers are doing these days. Yeah, for sure. Uh, like you said, uh, there's no real clear path uh, for a Canadian to take. So that's why I, I kind of turned to the, the system that's working right now uh, in the U.S., uh, the Mazda Road to Indy. And uh, I, I, I got into it kind of by chance. I just I won a Skip Barber uh, scholarship back in 20, at the end of 2010, which kind of put me on course to join this Road to India as a, from the natural progression from Skip Barber to, to USF 2000. I know some other, some other people are uh, going up through Formula 1600 and then going, and then it seems like they all jump to a, a USF 2000 as well. So really, I think the Mazda Road to Indy is the, uh, the main way if you want to, if you want to move up without uh, paying a lot of bucks. Well, you know, you, you only get one guy who's going to win the money, so it's definitely a gamble. But if you can win that, win that prize, then uh, it definitely is appealing. So right now, that's kind of the, uh, the main way I see it. And, um, there's a lot of guys in IndyCar that have come up through through this uh, series as well. So that's pretty much, for me, the only way I see it uh, at the moment. Right. What about getting from um, or getting into the Skip Barber Scholarship um, in the first place? What What did you do sort of earlier in your career that got you to the point where you were able to do that? I was go-karting with uh, Italian Motors, a local based here in Vancouver, and uh, they, Skip Barber has a, a karting shootout that they they bought all the the top carters and, and uh, across the country uh, in North America and or really anywhere to uh, come down and and show them what they can do in a car and if uh, if you impress them then they'll give you a, a scholarship to run their series so that's that's exactly what happened to me um, it was really my my dad just got an email with an invitation and we we figured well why not there's nothing really to lose so. Uh, we went there not knowing what to, what to expect, and I'd never driven a car before or anything like that. And next thing you know, I won a scholarship to uh, to race in the start, uh, in the in the Skip Barber series. So that was quite uh, quite special. Yeah, it does sound that way. And now you've got another scholarship coming your way. You were one of the recipients of the Team Canada scholarship this year. Congratulations on that! Very exciting. Uh, maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about how that came to be and what that gets you. Sure. Uh, so they started uh, three years ago, and um, the first year I wasn't eligible because they they uh, didn't look at the at the Skip Barber series um, in the states. They were mainly mainly focused on the on the Canadian 1600 championship. So uh, the next year they they opened up to to USF 2000 in the states. Canadian drivers driving in that, and then uh, as soon as I saw that, I I applied to be part of that and. And didn't quite get it last year, but uh, this year they they picked me, and and it's quite an honor to be able, know that I'm going to be going to, over to England to represent Canada. Especially, uh, you know, I, I I was growing up in Canada. I, I lived here my whole life in Vancouver, and and it's definitely a place that I want to represent when I go overseas. So that'll be really cool, and I'm really looking forward to that experience driving at the the Formula Ford Festival over in England. Excellent. Uh, one last question for you, and this one is one that, uh, as I was reading through your biography, it caught my attention because uh, this, uh, I, I noticed that you listed your racing hero as Greg Moore, and uh, and that stood out to me because he was mine as well, of course, uh, as he was for many Canadians. And um, yeah. but I what 
caught my eye about that was that um, you are 18 years old and uh, we're coming up now 14 years where uh, it's been since we lost Greg. So I had to ask, how is it that with you um, having crossed, uh, had the opportunity to cross paths if you even did with Greg so young in your life, how did it come to be that, that you uh, came to see him as your racing hero? Well, the fact that he lives, uh, you know, where he's from was just 10 minutes down the road from me is, is you know, it makes you, even though I never knew him, I knew about him uh, right off the bat. And then it was actually up in, uh, when I was in uh, grade 8, I did a school project about uh, Canadians that have influenced uh, influenced uh, the world, and, and I, did a, I did a school project on Greg Moore. Uh, and and how safety has developed since his accident and all that and and that came with that and so that so just by researching um, his his career and and where he came from and what, how he got there uh, just made me inspired that uh, someone as close to home as me could uh, make it that far and and I just wanted to you know follow in those footsteps and make it up to the top as well. Fantastic. Very interesting stuff. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak with me and uh, share with our listeners everything that's, uh, that's been going on in your career this season. And best of luck going into Houston. I hope we uh, we have a Canadian winner coming out of it. <laughs> and you and me both. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Really great to chat with Scott Hargrove and get his impressions of uh, his his season thus far and going into the weekend at uh, the Shell and Pencil Grand Prix of Houston. So um, definitely will be interesting to see whether he can get the job done when he's got his teammate and good friend hot on his heels. And that teammate and good friend, of course, is Neil Alberico, who is uh, a Bay Area native and uh, is definitely uh, looking to, to steal away from him the uh, the championship and the sponsorship from Mazda to move up into Pro Mazda for next season. Both of these drivers um, consider that to be absolutely critical to the development of their careers um, going forward, as any driver would, because that, that money, that sponsorship is is gold to any driver that um, that needs to move up. And both of these drivers have proven through their results that they're ready to do so. I also had a chance to sit down with Neil recently and get his thoughts on um, his season thus far and what it, what exactly he can do to um, to secure the championship at the Grand Prix of Houston. Let's hear from Neil. Steph Walker after morefrontwing.com here speaking with Cape Motorsports with Wayne Taylor Racing's Neil Alberico, a driver in the USF 2000 series. Neil is a Bay Area native uh, hailing from Los Gatos, California. He's 20 years old and with two races left in the USF 2000 season, he is 44 points behind his teammate, Scott Hargrove, who we've spoken to uh, earlier this week. Um, so, Neil, let's uh, let's start maybe by getting in your own words, sort of a summary of how your season has gone for people who may not have been able to follow the series that closely. Yeah, no, I mean, I've been racing with the Mazda Dandy and the USF 2000 series, traveling with ALMS, IndyCar, and this past race weekend with Grand Am, Laguna Seca, uh, Mazda Raceway, rather, but... Yeah, it's been a great season. We had a winter fest, which is like a preseason in uh, February with Cape Motorsports Wayne Taylor Racing. We won five out of six races, which is great. Won that small championship before the the main headline started. And, you know, we went to Sebring with uh, the ALMS in the 12-hour, and we did well there. We we won the second race. And, um, yeah, we've had some misfortunes, but, you know, that's the name of the game. That's racing. You know, unfortunately, we've DNF'd a few races, whether it be mechanical or just on-track incidences. And, you know, I think my big big story here is I've won a ton of races and I've crashed a lot of races. But, you know, we're still second in the 
in the championship. But, um, yeah, no, it's been a stellar season. I mean, I think to this day, with two races left in the championship, we've won 10 races overall since the beginning of Winterfest to now. So, I mean, that's that's more than any other driver in the series, which is awesome, you know. And, um, you know, big thanks to the Cape Motorsports to win Taylor Racing because they couldn't have done it without those guys. But so far, a stellar season. Um, two races to go, and we're still in it. So I'm psyched. Great. Um, as I mentioned, I've spoken with uh, with Scott rather recently, your teammate, and so uh, I'm asking you a lot of the same questions that I asked him, just yeah. because uh, it makes it's sort of interesting to get the two different perspectives on your from your two different positions on on the same championship battle that's going on right now. So. With you being in the position that you are, you're, as I said, 44 points behind. You've got two races left. It's 30 points for a win. So it's going to be a pretty uh, pretty valiant effort from you, but it's still possible for you to, to steal this title away from him at this point. Um, but at the same time, being teammates and uh, and uh, having a lot in common, you and Scott have sort of become really good friends um, through the course of, uh, of the season. And uh, so can you sort of describe for us the, the feeling of um, competing for a championship a very important one to both of you for furthering your careers, um, but still having to do that battle against somebody who you've actually become quite close with. Yeah, no, Scott's good friends with me. I mean, I think you know, it's in life, as in racing or anything else, it's easier to make friends than it is to kind of make enemies, you know, and uh, I think at the end of the day it works out better that way. But I've known Scott uh, through go-karting. He kind of started a little later than I was, and um, he's a couple years younger, but... I knew Scott from go-karts and, you know, our first year of racing USF 2000 last year, we were actually teammates on a different team. And, um, as we moved on, we kind of just so happened to be teammates again this year. And now, you know, two races into it, uh, two races left and we're battling for the championship. So two friends kind of going at it is kind of a cool thing, but yeah, from a teammate standpoint, we both want to beat each other. And every time we go on track, we're racing as hard as we can. You know, but I think it's part of having a great teammate, and I think that's what makes, you know, our relationship with the team, you know, that much better. Because when we go on track, I have to beat Scott, and then when I beat him, he has to beat me, and then we're, we get so far ahead that we're trying to, to basically beat perfection. So I think that's it's it's good. It's healthy competition, and, you know, Scott and I are definitely good friends, and, yeah, but when it comes to racing, we definitely want to kick each other's butts. <laughs> it's a good environment to be in to sort of get that extra push you might need to to um, be competitive. So, yeah, for sure. Uh, going into Houston now, being in the position that you're in, what do you feel like you have to do? And what do you need to accomplish to to get this championship for yourself? Where's what's your mentality going into this final weekend? Yeah, well, I mean, there's two races left. It's a street race. Anything can happen. Um, you know, street races are a tendency to be more prone to accidents and things like that. I mean, nobody ever wants that to happen. But, yeah, I, I basically just have to win. You know, that's the yeah, bottom line. I need to win and score as many points as I possibly can or anything else that happens is completely out of my control, you know. So we'll fight for it and we'll see how it turns out. Right. Um this year in USF 2000 has been a very strong year. There have been uh, fields that have been as high as 30 cars at some events. And yet, when you look at the stats for the season, you and Scott and Cape Motorsports with Wayne Taylor Racing have really owned it all. I mean, between the two of you, you've got nine wins and uh, even more podiums than that. Can you shed some light on why it is that this team is so strong in this series? 
I mean, like I said earlier with the whole teammate thing, I mean, the Capes as a team, the brothers, Dominic and Nicholas and, you know, the mechanics, they've all worked together behind the scenes for years. They know each other like brothers, you know, so they've been around forever and they selected me and Scott just because we've, maybe we've been teammates before. So we know each other really well and just the relationship that we all have that's super, super strong and, uh, when we go to the track, we all work so well together, and we push for everybody's on the you know the same page. We all want the best for everyone, you know. So with all that knowledge, and you go to the track, and everybody's aiming for the same goal, you get good results. And the Capes have years and years of experience, and they do a great job at selecting drivers that pair well together. And it's a combination of all that and all the work we do off track. And um, yeah, I mean it's it's been a pretty incredible year, and the Capes are are a big part of that you know they do really well with those two liter cars they really know those cars inside and out like i said they've been working with them for years so it's a combination of every small tiny detail that makes the biggest difference in the world right so let's learn a little bit more about you and your racing background how did you get to usf 2000 what was the path that you took oh boy uh well i started i started racing go-karts when i was 10 I was super young, and before that, I did dirt bikes and stuff. My dad was into racing, and um, being from the Bay Area, Northern California, I just traveled regionally, and um, I met a guy called Joey Hand, and um, he was probably one of my biggest influences in racing, and I met him when I was really young. My first lessons in go-karts were from him, and my first go-kart I bought from his dad, or and, um, you know, really good family friends, and he turned out to be a, a racing driver in the end, and he was doing sports cars, and uh, now he's you know factory driver for BMW, so I've always leaned on his kind of expertise and advice. And um, from go karts, he pushed me into like a school series, and um, I did that for a while. And then I ended up winning a Team USA scholarship from uh, Jeremy Shaw, the founder of the Team USA scholarship. And uh, Joe is a past winner actually of that that scholarship as well. So that kind of sent me off to Europe, and that was uh, 2010. You know, that was a big year for me. 2010, I won a huge karting championship and I won the school series championship out of Bondurant and I won the team USA scholarship as a nominee to go over there and kind of see what was going on in the open wheel side of things. And that's kind of when it changed from a hobby to more of a, you know, this could be a career for me. So I went to Europe after I graduated high school and spent 2011 season over there and uh, did really well in British and European Formula Ford, made a lot of good friends and, it was a huge learning experience for me, obviously, leaving home at 18 and, you know, making your own decisions, having your own responsibility, having to, you know, do everything on your own. Basically, it was a huge change from living at home, going to high school and public school as a teenager. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's where I went. And then after the 2011 season, I came back to the United States, um, you know, as some guidance with Jeremy Shaw, um, to join the Mazda Road to Indy and, and try and make uh, IndyCar my absolute goal. So here I am two years later and uh, fighting for the championship, so I couldn't be happier. Fantastic. You mentioned the Team USA scholarship, and I, uh, I had that on my list, and I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into that with you because uh, it seems to be something that's catching the public eye more and more is the these scholarships. And uh, as you know, Scott Hargrove uh, was, was awarded the Team Canada scholarship this year. Um, so I guess, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about what that involved and what that did for you and whether you had any advice for Scott? Yeah, I mean, 
Scott's going over there to race with the same team that I drove with in 2011, and um, Cliff Dempsey Racing, and they're a great team. Uh, their son Peter Dempsey is a good friend of all of us, and he races in Delights for Bellardi Autosport. But yeah, the the scholarship program's great. I mean, the Team USA scholarship is one of the best things around. You know, Jeremy's been a big supporter of junior open wheel stuff and, you know, getting younger drivers um, an opportunity to race and turn it into a career. And he scouts talent and, you know, he knows the best guys there's around. He's been, been finding them for years. So Jeremy's a really, really smart man. And he's kind of given a lot of opportunity to a lot of different people. Um, and it's just kind of given young drivers a chance, you know, people who don't necessarily have the biggest opportunity in the world, he's giving that to them and blessing them with a chance to go to Europe and prove themselves. So, yeah, the Team USA scholarship comes with a lot of supporters, and, you know, we couldn't do without those guys for sure to send us to do, you know, a couple of races at the end of the year. So it's opened a lot of doors for me and a lot of past drivers, you know, so it's been an absolute blessing for sure. Fantastic. And did you have any advice for Scott when you found out that he was he was going over to do the same program? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I talk to Scott all the time. He's asked me questions, what's it like, and I think he's going to do great. He's obviously been selected for a reason, and I've been teammates with him for the past two years. I know how good he is, so he'll do great. I mean, I might even be over there in England during that time, but we'll see. I, I obviously want my guys to win, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so... Get that we'll patriotic level. I'll do well. Going. Yeah, absolutely. exactly. Right. TV said all the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, the guys will do good. Scott's a good driver. He'll be fine. I'm sure he will. Um, so you mentioned your your path through carts and through Europe, and uh, that would have all involved road and uh, and uh, sort of twisty racing, as some people mm-hmm. like to say. But um, yet yeah, you claimed the victory at uh, Lucas Oil Raceway this year as uh, your first. Was that your first oval mm-hmm. victory? Well, it would have been because I don't know. Yeah. If had a chance to do that before. Yeah, that was my first oval win. Um, I raced the oval last year and had some misfortune. Um, but, yeah, that was my first oval win. And to win at Indy is incredible. You know, I know it's not the speedway, but it's the next best thing. So, yeah, I mean, my personal experience with ovals is, is very small. I mean, we did a test earlier in the season, and, you know, that really prepared us for, um, for Indianapolis. But, you know, to me, the ovals are just a whole nother level of focus and, um, and driving style. I mean, you have to be, it's, it's, it's different to me. It's 10, 20, a hundred times harder than it is to race, um, 75 lap oval than it is to race a 30 minute sprint race on a, you know, a tra- the track like mid Ohio, but you know, every, every mistake is magnified by a thousand, you know, uh, tenths are now hundreds, thousands of a second, um, and it's, you know, it's a huge, it's a huge game that you play making those laps and it's so repetitive, but yeah, ovals are tough. They're very, very, very hard to be fast at. And, you know, if you can, you can be quick in an oval, I think you can be quick anywhere. Very cool. So last question is, I don't know yet whether you're looking to, to the future or how far in the future you're looking, but uh, of course, Cape Motorsports with Wayne Taylor Racing doesn't race in Pro Mazda. And so um, that closes one potential door that would be an obvious path for your way to move up and yet you're clearly at the stage where you're ready to to move on and uh, gain a new level of experience have you started thinking much about next year or do you have any any thoughts in place yeah i mean pro mazda is the next natural progression in the mazda road to indy so that's 
that's most likely where I will try my best to go. I mean, it all kind of depends on, you know, how Houston goes. You know, if I win the championship and the scholarship, then, you know, I have an obvious uh, decision to go to Pro Mazda. But, you know, without the scholarship money, unfortunately, you know, I can't afford to move on on my own. So I'm definitely going to need a lot of help from, you know, outside funding. And, you know, that's it's a tough part of racing for sure. I mean, all drivers go through it. You know, I think we're a lot of us are at the point in our careers where, um, driving the race car is the easy part, you know, and yeah. trying to trying to get us to the racetrack is is the the biggest challenge. But yeah, we're working on some stuff, but nothing set in stone for sure. I mean, it's 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 sad, really, but um, that's that's the reality, and we're gonna do our best to try and get there and um, keep myself in the series next year, so I can keep racing and fighting for championships. You know, that's what that's what I've kind of dedicated my life to, and. Um, you know, motorsport, and this is where I'm at. So we're going to do our best to keep racing and um, get in there. So that's the plan. Very cool. Well, best of luck to you. Uh, very interested to see how Houston shakes out, and I uh, wish you all the best for for the future and uh, hope to see you move up. Yeah, thanks, Seth. All right, thank you. Great to hear from both of these young drivers, Scott Hargrove and Neil Alberico, going into what will be the battle of their careers in the, the uh, Shell and Pennzoil Grand Prix of Houston. John, how do you expect it all to play out? Well, I think the the main key for Scott, uh, the only bad thing for Neil is that the one guy that he's chasing and needs to be able to out-qualify and out-finish for sure is a teammate. And uh, Cape Motorsports has, has had the dominant equipment and, and the two best drivers so far this year. Uh, so, I mean, I think Neil's only hope is if Scott gets into trouble. But we've seen it in a, in a few other events here so far uh, where we've had some uh, – some mashups on the start at these USF 2000 races. Neil's actually got caught up in a couple of those. And uh, honestly, if, if the same thing doesn't happen to Scott, uh, just just off of pace-wise, Scott's been so quick this year, every race he's finished, he's basically been a top-five car. Um, you know, I, I don't know how much hope just on, on true race pace there is. Something, something bad is going to have to happen to Scott. Uh, and Scott's game plan has got to be coming in as a qualified front, control the start, and, and get away from the carnage. And if he can do that and if the car holds together, uh, he should be able to hold out. Um, well, and that's really the thing that's made the difference in this season is that uh, Scott has had such a consistent year, whereas Neil actually has one more win on the books. But the uh, results that haven't been wins haven't been as consistent. He's, uh, he's as you said, has gotten caught up in a couple of those uh, those big problem um incidents that have happened in some of these races and uh it just um it, it's the same thing that's playing out in the indycar series right now where we've got elio who has only the one win this year and um and uh, there are guys behind him who have more but yet he's just had the more consistent season and has a had an easier time getting um everything sort of kept in in uh, in check and and getting those those um consistent top five results on the books and any series with a point system like uh, like these series have that that really makes a big difference when you get to the end of the year the what the other wild card that um that might come into play here and and could uh, spoil the party for neil alberico is uh, this this newcomer on the block alex brown have you did you get to see the results out of uh, laguna seca john where he basically got into a car that he's never driven before probably possibly never even looked at in real life in his life and he put the thing on pole and won it in his very first race it, it absolutely just it's just amazing i don't care what level of, of 
racing you're at, uh, whether it's some club racing like I've done, any development ladder series, anywhere, if you show up in a car you haven't driven against a field of guys who've been running all year long in that car, know the speed tricks, know the setup tricks for that car, and and not to mention he jumped in with Team Afterburner uh, uh, Autosport that hasn't had much success this year mm-hmm. and just absolutely dominates, puts it on the pole, wins a race, finishes third, I think, in the in the in the other race. Mm-hmm. That's some serious talent. I mean that that guy's a shoe. There's no other way to put it. I mean you don't just show up and do that good uh, in open wheel series. No, absolutely. And so that's really what the uh, the big spoiler for Neil Albrico might be, is that all of a sudden we've got this kid that showed up at Laguna Seca and put up these fantastic results, and now we, we've got it confirmed that he's going to be on the, in the, the show at Houston as well. And so um, having another driver who's competitive enough to steal points away from Neil at this stage in the game is uh, going to make life really difficult for him. Uh, and even more solidifies the fact that all Scott really needs is a clean and, um, and safe weekend to get his his title tied up and his sponsor, his sponsorship in place to get him moved up to Pro Mazda for next year. So um, intriguing stuff going into the Grand Prix of Houston for the uh, the USF 2000 guys. And um, we are looking forward to covering it all for you at morefrontwing.com. Both John and I will be on site at uh, the Grand Prix of Houston. We've got that confirmed. And so we're going to be working together to make sure that we get all of these, uh, all four levels of the Road to Indy and the double headers for the Indy cars all covered for you. And uh, we will be running our butts off but we're looking forward to it because um this, we do this for fun don't we if it stops being fun i guess we stop doing it <laughs> yeah, absolutely it's, it's going to be great look forward to it we are we're going to be very busy there will be a lot of content on more front wing that weekend i can guarantee you absolutely looking forward to it uh one more thing we want to mention to you before we go is that uh, we are now starting to to lead up to the grand prix of houston and uh as we do that we're going to start launching some really exciting programs we're going into the second stage of our charity association program uh for the grand prix of houston and as we do that, we're going to start launching some uh, pretty exciting things on morefrontwing.com. So please keep an eye on the site early next this week, early this week to um, get to, to take a look at some of the, the exciting stuff that we've got planned. And uh, we will carry that right through up until the Shell and Pennzoil Grand Prix of Houston weekend. And with that, John, unless you can think of anything I've missed, I think we're ready to call it a day. That sounds good to me. Looking okay. forward to Houston coming up. Absolutely. And I think uh, next week we're, we're going to bring you back and we're going to have a, a little bit more time to spend with the, the Firestone Indy Lights guys and get them a little bit of um, exposure and uh, and uh, discussion leading into their end game of their season. They have two races left because they will run at Fontana as well as Houston. Um, but definitely interested to, to peek in on those guys and see where their championship battle stands as uh, as they start to come toward the end of the year, year as well. Yeah, look forward to it. Got some good stuff from Dan, uh, from some interviews I've had with him. Uh, That's Dan Andy, Anderson Andy who's taking over Indy Lights next year. Yeah, I mean, that's, that series is going to be on the upswing. They've got some really good stuff in the works. they got some good competition now, just really short fields, but they're doing some stuff to address that. So look, looking forward to talking about them next week. Yeah, and uh, in the meantime, you know the drill. If you need IndyCar news and views, get a grip with more front wing.